The Confessions of Arsène Lupin by Maurice Leblanc Narrated by Paul Spera The Infernal Trap When the race was over, a crowd of people streaming toward the exit from the grandstand pushed against Nicolas Dugrival. He brought his hand smartly to the inside pocket of his jacket. "'What's the matter?' asked his wife. "'I feel very nervous with that money on me. I'm afraid of some nasty accident,' she muttered. "'And I can understand you.' How can you think of carrying such a sum about with you, every farthing we possess? Lord knows, it cost us trouble enough to earn. Pooh, he said. No one would guess that it is here, in my pocketbook. Yes, yes, she grumbled. The young man-servant whom we discharged last week knew all about it, didn't he, Gabriel? Yes, aunt, said a youth standing beside her. Nicolas Dugrival, his wife, and his nephew Gabriel were well-known figures at the race meetings, where the regular frequenters saw them almost every day. Dugrival, a big, fat, red-faced man who looked as if he knew how to enjoy life, his wife, also built on heavy lines with a coarse, vulgar face, and always dressed in a plum-colored silk much the worse for wear, the nephew quite young, slender, with pale features, dark eyes, and fair and rather curly hair. As a rule, the couple remained seated throughout the afternoon. It was Gabriel who bet for his uncle, watching the horses in the paddock, picking up tips right and left among the jockeys and stable lads, running backward and forward between the stands and the Paris Mutuelle. Luck had favored them that day, for three times Dugraval's neighbors saw the young man come back and hand him money. The fifth race was just finishing. Dugraval lit a cigar. At that moment, a gentleman in a tight-fitting brown suit, with a face ending in a peaked gray beard, came up to him and asked, in a confidential whisper, "'Does this happen to belong to you, sir?' And he displayed a gold watch and chain. Dugraval gave a start. "'Why, yes, it's mine. Look, here are my initials, N.G. Nicolas Dugraval.' And he at once, with a movement of terror, clapped his hand to his jacket pocket. The note case was still there. Ah, he said, greatly relieved, that's a piece of luck. But all the same, how on earth was it done? Do you know the scoundrel? Yes, we've got him locked up. Pray come with me, and we'll soon look into the matter. Whom have I the honor? Uh, Monsieur Delange, detective inspector. I have sent to let Monsieur Marquen, the magistrate, know. Nicolas Dugraval went out with the inspector and the two of them started for the commissary's office, some distance behind the grandstand. They were within fifty yards of it when the inspector was accosted by a man who said to him hurriedly, "'The fellow with the watch has blabbed. We're on the tracks of a whole gang. Monsieur Marquen wants you to wait for him at the Paris Mutuelle and to keep a lookout near the fourth booth.' There was a crowd outside the betting booths, and Inspector Delangle muttered, "'It's an absurd arrangement. Who am I to look out for?' That's just like Monsieur Marquen. He pushed aside a group of people who were crowding too close upon him. By Jove, one has to use one's elbows here and keep a tight hold on one's purse. That's the way you got your watch pinched, Monsieur Dugraval. I can't understand. Oh, if you knew how those gentry go to work. One never guesses what they're up to next. 
One of them treads on your foot, another gives you a poke in the eye with his stick, and the third picks your pocket before you know where you are. I've been had that way myself. He stopped and then continued angrily. But bother it, what's the use of hanging about here? What a mob, it's unbearable. Ah, there's Monsieur Marquette making signs to us. One moment, please, and be sure and wait for me here. He shouldered his way through the crowd. Nicolas Dugrival followed him for a moment with his eyes. Once the inspector was out of sight, he stood a little to one side to avoid being hustled. A few minutes passed. The sixth race was about to start when Dugrival saw his wife and nephew looking for him. He explained to them that Inspector de Langle was arranging matters with the magistrate. "'Have you your money still?' asked his wife. "'Why, of course I have,' he replied. "'The inspector and I took great care, I assure you, not to let the crowd jostle us.' He felt his jacket, gave a stifled cry, thrust his hand into his pocket, and began to stammer inarticulate syllables while Madame Dugreval gasped in dismay. "'What is it? What's the matter?' "'Stolen!' he moaned. The pocketbook, the fifty notes. It's not true, she screamed. It's not true. Yes, the inspector, a common sharper. He's the man. She uttered absolute yells. Thief, thief, stop, thief. My husband's been robbed. Fifty thousand francs. We're ruined. Thief, thief. In a moment, they were surrounded by policemen and taken to the commissary's office. Dugreval went like a lamb, absolutely bewildered. His wife continued to shriek at the top of her voice, piling up explanations, railing against the inspector. Have him looked for, have him found, a brown suit, a pointed beard. Oh, the villain, to think what he's robbed us of. Fifty thousand francs. Why, why, Dugreval, what are you doing? With one bound, she flung herself upon her husband. Too late. He had pressed the barrel of a revolver against his temple. A shot rang out. Dugreval fell. He was dead. The reader cannot have forgotten the commotion made by the newspapers in connection with this case, nor how they jumped at the opportunity once more to accuse the police of carelessness and blundering. Was it conceivable that a pickpocket could play the part of an inspector like that in broad daylight and in a public place and rob a respectable man with impunity? Nicolas Dugreval's widow kept the controversy alive, thanks to her jeremiads and to the interviews which she granted on every hand. A reporter secured a snapshot of her in front of her husband's body, holding up her hand and swearing to avenge his death. Her nephew Gabriel was standing beside her, with hatred pictured in his face. He too, it appeared, in a few words uttered in a whisper, but in a tone of fierce determination, had taken an oath to pursue and catch the murderer. The accounts described the humble apartment which they occupied at the Batignolles, and as they had been robbed of all their means, a sporting paper opened a subscription on their behalf. As for the mysterious de Langle, he remained undiscovered. Two men were arrested, but had to be released forthwith. The police took up a number of clues, which were at once abandoned, more than one name was mentioned, and lastly they accused Arsène Lupin, an action which provoked the famous burglar's celebrated cable, dispatched from New York six days after the incident. Protest indignantly against calumny invented by baffled police. Send my condolences to unhappy victims instructing my bankers to remit them 50,000 francs. Lupin. True enough, on the day after the publication of the cable, a stranger rang at Madame Dugreval's door and handed her an envelope. The envelope contained 50,000 franc notes. This theatrical stroke was not at all calculated to allay the universal comment, but an event soon occurred which provided any amount of additional excitement. 
two days later, the people living in the same house as Madame Dugerval and her nephew were awakened at four o'clock in the morning by horrible cries and shrill calls for help. They rushed to the flat. The porter succeeded in opening the door. By the light of a lantern carried by one of the neighbors, he found Gabriel stretched at full length in his bedroom, with his wrists and ankles bound and a gag forced into his mouth, while in the next room, Madame Dugreval lay with her life's blood ebbing away through a great gash in her breast. She whispered, The money! I've been robbed! All the notes gone! And she fainted away. What had happened? Gabriel said, and as soon as she was able to speak, Madame Dugreval completed her nephew's story, that he was startled from his sleep by finding himself attacked by two men, one of whom gagged him while the other fastened him down. He was unable to see the men in the dark, but he heard the noise of the struggle between them and his aunt. It was a terrible struggle, Madame Dugreval declared. The ruffians, who obviously knew their way about, guided by some intuition, made straight for the little cupboard containing the money and, in spite of her resistance and outcries, laid hands upon the bundle of banknotes. As they left, one of them, whom she had bitten in the arm, stabbed her with a knife whereupon the men had both fled. Which way? she was asked. Through the door of my bedroom, and afterwards, I suppose, through the hall door. Impossible. The porter would have noticed them. For the whole mystery lay in this. How had the ruffians entered the house, and how had they managed to leave it? There was no outlet open to them. Was it one of the tenants? A careful inquiry proved the absurdity of such a supposition. What then? Chief Inspector Ganimar, who was placed in special charge of the case, confessed that he had never known anything more bewildering. It's very like Lupin, he said, and yet it's not Lupin. No, there's more in it than meets the eye, something very doubtful and suspicious. Besides, if it were Lupin, why should he take back the 50,000 francs which he sent? There's another question that puzzles me. What is the connection between the second robbery and the first, the one on the race course? The whole thing is incomprehensible, and I have a sort of feeling, which is very rare with me, that there is no use hunting. For my part, I give up. The examining magistrate threw himself into the case with heart and soul. The reporters united their efforts with those of the police. A famous English sleuth-hound crossed the channel. A wealthy American, whose head had been turned by detective stories, offered a big reward to whosoever should supply the first information leading to the discovery of the truth. Six weeks later, no one was any the wiser. The public adopted Ganimar's view, and the examining magistrate himself grew tired of struggling in a darkness which only became denser as time went on. And life continued as usual with Dugreval's widow. Nursed by her nephew, she soon recovered from her wound. In the mornings, Gabriel settled her in an easy chair at the dining room window, did the rooms, and then went out marketing. He cooked their lunch without even accepting the proffered assistance of the porter's wife. Worried by the police investigations, and especially by the requests for interviews, the aunt and nephew refused to see anybody. Not even the portress whose chatter disturbed and wearied Madame Dugreval, was admitted. She fell back upon Gabriel, whom she accosted each time he passed her room. "'Take care, Mr. Gabriel, you're both of you being spied on. There are men watching you. Why, only last night my husband caught a fellow staring up at your windows.' "'Nonsense,' said Gabriel. "'It's all right. That's the police protecting us.' One afternoon, at about four o'clock, there was a violent altercation between two costermongers at the bottom of the street. 
The porter's wife at once left her room to listen to the invectives which the adversaries were hurling at each other's heads. Her back was no sooner turned than a man, young, of medium height, and dressed in a gray suit of irreproachable cut, slipped into the house and ran up the staircase. When he came to the third floor, he rang the bell. Receiving no answer, he rang again. At the third summons, the door opened. Madame Dugreval, he asked, taking off his hat. Madame Dugreval is still an invalid and unable to see anyone, said Gabriel, who stood in the hall. It's most important that I should speak to her. I am her nephew, and perhaps I could take her a message. Very well, said the man. Please tell Madame Dugreval that an accident has supplied me with valuable information concerning the robbery from which she has suffered, and that I should like to go over the flat and ascertain certain particulars for myself. I am accustomed to this sort of inquiry, and my call is sure to be of use to her. Gabriel examined the visitor for a moment, reflected, and said, In that case, I suppose my aunt will consent. Pray, come in. He opened the door of the dining room and stepped back to allow the other to pass. The stranger walked to the threshold, but at the moment when he was crossing it, Gabriel raised his arm and, with a swift movement, struck him with a dagger over the right shoulder. A burst of laughter rang through the room. Ha, 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 got him, cried Madame Dugreval, darting up from her chair. Well done, Gabriel, but I say, you haven't killed the scoundrel, have you? I don't think so, aunt. It's a small blade, and I didn't strike him too hard. The man was staggering with his hands stretched in front of him and his face deathly pale. You fool, sneered the widow. So you've fallen into the trap, and a good job, too. We've been looking out for you a long time. Come, my fine fellow. Down with you. You don't care about it, do you? But you can't help yourself, you see? That's right. One knee on the ground, before the missus, now the other knee. How well we've been brought up. Crash! There we go on the floor! Lord, if my poor Dugreval could only see him like that. And now, Gabriel, to work. She went to her bedroom and opened one of the doors of a hanging wardrobe filled with dresses. Pulling these aside, she pushed open another door, which formed the back of the wardrobe and led to a room in the next house. Help me carry him, Gabriel, and you'll nurse him as well as you can, won't you? For the present, he's worth his weight in gold to us, the artist. <laughs>